Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Charlene Jessica Parker, and I'm so excited today to introduce you to Aaron Frank here with us from Singularity University. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you for being here. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me. So I know that you're working in the world of emerging tech and exponential technologies. What is your primary focus in that world? Yeah, so, so I'm based at a company called Singularity University, and I sit on the faculty here focused on augmented and virtual reality. And why did you choose that path? What is it about VR and AR that really inspires you? Yeah, that's interesting. So I actually started here on the business side of the organization, and I kind of fell into virtual reality at the beginning kind of organically i was always fascinated by the technology i really was drawn to it uh, i remember my first time inside an oculus rift uh, one of the early consumer headset devices in 2012 and as soon as i put it on it completely transformed how i saw the role of a technology like that because i was immediately transported to an entirely new place and then the way that i got into really focusing on focusing on the technology as a research topic. Uh, I had a few really good opportunities in the early days of the technology space to cover and write about the, the tech. So I wrote an article that got put on Forbes uh, about what was at the time a very sort of groundbreaking application and then built that and built momentum as a journalist uh, writing about the technology. Uh, so for probably about the last five or six years, I've, I've been focused on the technology as a journalist, but then uh, also had a chance to build a few applications along the way and just kind of organically fell into it and, and really drawn by this idea that it's a tool that can literally take you to any experience that you can imagine. And so, you know, there's a lot of talk about VR taking us to new experiences, to new places. And you said that when you first put that headset on, it sparked in you what was possible that you hadn't even considered. Can you give us a sense of what you see as possible with VR and, and what is significant about being able to be transported into new spaces and environments? Yeah, and, and I can probably share a, a personal anecdote that kind of speaks to this is, I mean, literally any experience that you can imagine, and, and there's many more experiences that you can imagine having that are not possible in the real world, become possible in a completely digital environment like virtual reality. And so, and actually from, so from my own experience, uh, so I, so I came to Singularity University about seven years ago. And when I first joined, I had never in my entire life ever given a public presentation in front of a group of people. That was not what I was trained to do. That was not my background. That was never a career path that I saw myself uh, doing. The idea of standing in front of a room of people uh, terrified me. Um, and then when I started at, at, at SU, I was one of only a handful of people at the time. There were, the company at that point was probably only uh, 15 or so people. And so there was an increasing demand to have people capable of telling the story of exponential technologies and, and SU. And I remember the first time that I was ever asked to give a public presentation, I was completely unprepared. So, so what happened was... Uh, a colleague of mine who typically gives presentations to incoming groups, uh, you know, kind of, you know, if a group is on a tour and they come to visit our campus. Um, and so about 10 or so minutes before he was scheduled to give this presentation, uh, he sends me an email. It basically said, uh, I forget why, but I think it, like his car broke down or something. 
but basically said, hey, I'm not gonna make it to the presentation today. Uh, so I've actually attached my slide deck. Good luck, you're gonna give the presentation today. And I had never given a public talk. I had never done this before. And it was actually a, a fairly important group that was coming in. It was a, a high profile group of executives from Mexico, uh, potentially some that, that could have invested in Singularity University at the time. And I'll remember, or I'll sort of never forget that I completely bombed it. Like it was awful. It was so awkward, I had a shaking leg the whole time. And then around the same time I was thinking, well, how could I, I had been better at that experience and I thought about it, well, if I had just been exposed to what it's like to actually stand in front of a room of people and experience that social pressure. Um, and so that was sort of my first insight into, wow, like in virtual reality, I could have done that. Uh, and so I actually worked with a team of developers and built uh, and sort of an early prototype on, uh, and this has actually been done by several, several projects and concepts uh, and companies since. Um, and so it's a really great idea is just this, creating the social pressure of practicing being on stage in front of a group of people. Uh, so for me, it actually really helps kind of getting comfortable with that, you know, what is otherwise a traumatic experience. Uh, and that is the kind of thing, I mean, you can literally, we could, you know, we could spend hours, you and I just sitting here talking about what are the kinds of things we could develop in VR. It's, you know, the, the possibilities are pretty, pretty endless. So you actually did help create a program where you can experience yourself giving a public talk on a stage in front of an audience and you notice a shift in your ability to then do that in real life with more ease. Yeah, absolutely. And even like I have an old, I mean, as a very basic prototype, I, I worked with a developer uh, who built it in Unity and it looks like a very, very basic, uh, almost like, you know, 90s computer graphics um, cartoon version of what it feels like to stand on kind of like a Ted style stage in front of a, you know, very cartoonish looking audience. But even that, because of that full immersion, when you're inside a virtual reality headset, you know, you're, you know, what researchers call presence, this idea that you, you know, psychologically feel as if you're, you're actually in this space, um, you know, when you put on the headset, that does create some of the same physiological sensations of, of, you know, I would get nervous even in VR putting on this headset mm -hmm. uh, and over time, you know, it's sort of what, you know, like exposure therapy, exposure training uh, was able to help reduce that anxiety uh, over time. And that was, you know, that was in my own personal uh, experience that I, that I found that. That's so cool. And that is, there's two areas of VR that I find most interesting. And one is in the world of becoming our best self. And so really, like using VR experiences to become a better speaker or to imagine ourselves doing the thing that we're afraid of, that we want to see ourselves doing. Imagine ourselves on a stage talking to Oprah, if that's the thing, and just actually being able to create environments where we experience our, our dream, our future vision of our life and bring it now so that we can, what I believe, and I, I'm setting this up as a question as well, what I believe is that it'll actually help kind of collapse timelines. It'll actually make it easier to be that future version of ourselves, the the thing that we're dreaming into, bring it in sooner because we'll have that physical experience, the embodied experience of it. And so from some of the research I've done on brain, the mind doesn't really know the difference of whether it's real or not. Um, and I'll tell you the other area I'm, I'm really interested in a moment, but I'm curious if you're seeing any other projects that are kind of working in this, this concept and idea. Yeah, that's such a cool, like, that's such a cool application and, and way of thinking about why the technology is so interesting is 
you know, it really is the most powerful tool that I've come across in really, you know, bringing out your full potential and whatever it is you're trying to do. So, you know, this, I think what really clicked for me uh, was an example of a startup that I went to go visit uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, but for a while in the early days of VR, everyone was talking about education, for example, and how, oh yeah, in VR, you'll be able to go and see the, you know, ancient Greece and walk around and get a tour, or you can, you know, get a tour of, um, you know, Yosemite National Park in VR, which is true and that's great. Uh, but the real, I think, potential in terms of, and you could call it education, but I think what you're describing is, is even more powerful. This idea of unlocking your, uh, you know, your best self is VR is really a tool to train and learn either new skills or new ways of being. Um, and so this one demo that I tried was a company called Tribe. Um, it's called Tribe XR, I believe is the full name of the company. Uh, but what, what they're trying to do is actually go into the marketplace where typically YouTube tutorial videos live. So if you want to learn um, any kind of skill, most people will, will turn to YouTube. You know, if you want to learn how to play guitar, if you want to you know, learn a new recipe and how to cook a dish, if you want to learn to meditate, you know, whatever it is, uh, YouTube, you know, really, you know, serves that function. Uh, but imagine being able to put on a VR headset and learning a new skill, not by watching some two-dimensional screen, but by actually embodying that environment. So the demo they had me try, their first application was uh, using a DJ turntable. So, you know, electronic music, very, you know, very specific uh, skill set. But, you know, I've, you know, put me in front of a, a DJ controller and I have, you know, no idea what these knobs and buttons do. You know, it's like, I think I wrote in the article about it, uh, it's like, you know, asking me to, to fly a jumbo jet. Like, I, I don't know. But in VR, they're, you're able to use your own hands to actually feel like you're standing in front of a real turntable. You learn, oh, this dial does this. And there's a, a tutorial that shows you, not by watching a screen and you have to write notes, but by actually guiding you with your own hands and body <laughs> through that skill. And what was crazy, this is almost like, you know, Neo in the Matrix where he says, you know, I know Kung Fu. When they pulled the headset off and they, they placed me in front of a real turntable, I now knew exactly how to use it. I'd never seen a real, I never used a real DJ turntable in my life. And so, you know, in five minutes in VR, I know exactly how to use this thing. And you can imagine just, I think, and you know, even in sort of, you know, that's like a very specific skill, but in sort of like softer skills, like maybe something like, meditation or mindfulness or you know visualization training is such a important tool or a valuable tool that vr really gives you the opportunity to literally visualize anything you can imagine um you know i and and just the, i'll end on uh i i once saw a vr researcher uh speaker make this point really well and he showed a video of what he watches anytime he goes on stage to give a presentation he's created this like VR build of basically an avatar that looks like himself giving a presentation in front of like thousands of people that are all like cheering for him. So he can like put on this headset and they can cheer and he's standing in front of a room and everyone's like cheering for him. And he watches that before he does anything important, like, you know, puts him in the right, you know, flow state, state of mind. And, you know, that's, I think a really interesting and cool, you know, way that, that VR could be used. It's like cool stuff like that. That's such an amazing application. And, you know, there's so much talk these days about getting into flow state and how we can kind of hack 
flow states and how you know people are learning from sports teams and how they do that but oftentimes we're sitting at desks or we're doing things that don't have the same variables that like athletes have with the team environment and the movement and all the things that have traditionally brought people in the flow states and so this is a really interesting um, application to potentially get into more of a flow state yeah and there's um there's a really great uh writer in this space his name's uh, Stephen Kotler maybe you know his name uh yeah you probably know uh so he he wrote a book called the rise of superman about flow states and 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 he and i have caught up and and talked about this uh, a little bit but but you know the thing i learned from him in, in his book is that you know what he points out is that to really get into a flow state there's the flow state sorry there's this fine balance this fine line between boredom and um you know what's too far beyond your skill set and finding the sweet spot of what's just outside your comfort zone and in certain areas, things are really um, dangerous to p push yourself in your comfort zone. In VR, you can recreate and simulate some of those um, you know, skills that might be outside your comfort zone without actually creating real life danger. Um, and so in certain application areas, not, not everything, uh, VR can, can probably play a really interesting role in, in trying to hack or find that, that place where, where flow starts to emerge. Really interesting. So I just have this image of a snowboarder going into VR, imagine themselves doing these, these new tricks and these flips and things. And then the fear in me came up of what if they don't get, they get on the mountain then and they think they know how to do it and they don't have the fear because they work through the fear, but they can't do it. Are there any, yeah. I, want, I want to say more positive, but have you seen anything like that where people go into these VR experiences, they feel like they're more invincible and then they go into real life and there's a, a hiccup. Yeah. It's really interesting that you, you, you're actually like the second person I've heard ask that question in the last few weeks. So I wonder what's, what's happening. I've, I, I haven't. So the short answer is I don't think that at this point, the technology is sufficiently convincing to, um, you know, have someone truly believe that they're, you know, I've never been on a, on a black diamond ski slope before that they can just strap some, you know, some knives onto their, feet and then just make their way down. I don't think that that's happened or is the case, but it's, you know, I don't know if in the future that's potentially a, an issue that, you know, or I can imagine in, you know, actually weirdly, you know, it's um, VR is being used to train people in uh, uncomfortable social interactions. So like networking, for example, if you have social anxiety, these are kinds of things you can, can practice in VR. I don't know if anyone's gonna, you know, come out of a, a VR headset and think they can walk into, uh, you know, a, a challenging networking environment immediately feeling like, you know, the most charismatic person in the world. But it is possible. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's 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 something I haven't come across, but it's maybe something to keep in mind. And so on that thread. Um, what is the conversation around ethics like right now? Is that something that you're focusing on at Singularity of the ethics of VR and AR? Yeah, it's a big topic and, and one that I think people are, are, it's an easy one to dr get drawn to when you start talking about some of the things you can do with VR. Um, and there's probably a few key areas that, that concern some of our research um, here at, at, Sing at Singularity University. And, and when you start to talk about, so one of the things that makes VR such an interesting technology is that it is probably one of the most powerful tools of persuasion that 
you've ever come across. And a lot of, a lot of my insights and a lot of the, the research I've, I've come across in this area is, is done out of uh, Stanford University, which luckily for me is actually quite close. It's right up the street. There's a, a lab called the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Uh, it's run by uh, a researcher named Jeremy Balinson, who's been in this space for, for decades. And his, his lab is interesting because unlike at other universities where virtual reality would likely sit in the computer science department, his lab is in the School of Communication and Social, Social Psychology. So he's a psychologist uh, and really looking at, you know, what are the benefits, but also the downside risks of, you know, putting people in these incredibly persuasive uh, environments. So I can give one example on a sort of a positive uh, use case for, for VR, but it also kind of, you can imagine, demonstrates some of the negative harms uh, associated as well. Uh, there was one of his uh, PhD candidates at the time was, was doing a study on using virtual reality to, to persuade people to become more conscious um, protectors of the environment, to consume less paper, you know, turn the sinks off if they're brushing their teeth and not using the water, you know, shower quicker, things like that. And what they did is they had two groups of people. One group had just a basic, you know, read, I think they read a persuasive essay about why they should be more conscious about the environment. And then a second group they brought into a lab and placed in a virtual environment and given a, a haptic device that simulated what it's like to cut down a redwood forest tree. And what they found is that the person who goes through the experience of actually having felt like they've cut down this, you know, old growth tree has a far more, um, they, they noticed this, you know, statistically significant uh, reduction in their, you know, I think use of paper, uh, for example, right after the study is, you know, how they measured this. And so that, you know, that, that leads, you know, the, the evidence suggests that you can actually persuade people to behave in certain ways. And maybe this is one that we can imagine is quite positive. Um, but imagine on the, on the, on the, you know, maybe more nefarious side, uh, imagine in a, a massive virtual environment where there's a public presentation happening because it's in a digital environment, and I'm blinking on the term, but this is a, there's a very specific term for this, but imagine being able to program the public speaker to make the right amount of eye contact with everybody who's there viewing the event to sort of increase their charismatic ability to persuade the audience. You can start to really play with social interaction and, and um, you know, basically it's, it's a tool that can be used for good or harm in, in doing really um, powerful and it, you know, persuasive thing. So you have to, it's not really a new ethical challenge. It's, it's, it's a sort of just like, you know, the ethics of, of print publication, you know, should you try and persuade people to have certain ideas that, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's what makes it, what makes VR so interesting is that it's so persuasive and it's so embodied uh, that it can really convince um, people to, to think and act and behave and embody beliefs and ideas in, in certain ways. You know, this is very interesting. It comes back to what I was saying in a positive way of how we can maybe trick our brains into thinking that we're better at something or more confident or seeing ourselves with, with our idol and, and envisioning, like really, you know, it's, it's tricking the brain. It's a form of, it's positive manipulation or positive brainwashing, yeah. um, but it's the same thing. And I can see how it could go either way. And so I'm really excited about what's possible with VR. And what seems cool to me is that there's so many people that are really working on the positive potential of VR. 
And I'm sure there's some behind the scenes things happening. Um, is there going to be, is there any type of regulation for how VR will be used publicly? That's an interesting question. I think at the moment, I, I mean, I imagine absolutely there has to be. Um, and I remember a few years ago, there was a U.S. Senate hearing, or it was a congressional hearing. I don't know if it was the House or the Senate. It might have been the House. Um, but they, they had a hearing on some of the national security and I think like ethical risks associated. At the time, it was more around augmented reality as opposed to just virtual reality. But the conversation and the topics kind of blurred and blended. Uh, but they were they were really looking at you know, more like things, uh, more things like, um, and this was when Pokemon Go had just come out, uh, for example, in, I forget which city, I think it was in Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee tried to have Niantic ban, uh, um, Milwaukee tried to have Niantic stop placing Pokemon in public parks because so many people were coming to the park that they would leave trash and, you know, just harm the, the space. And, they were, they were making the argument that, you know, that, that Niantic was responsible. Um, but they also, the, this congressional hearing also started talking about the idea of, you know, being able to manipulate your reality. Imagine being, you know, in a virtual environment and someone hacks your headset and, and places you in an uncomfortable or distressing um, space. Mm. That's, you know, that's a pretty, um, you know, difficult thing. I think an, another, another kind of ethical question that I'm sure will need to be regulated is, because it's a digital environment, you can literally create anything. And there, and should there be limits? I know uh, I was reading an article a, uh, a while ago about, and I'd have to find this. Um, there were there are, there are academic researchers sort of using virtual subjects. These aren't real people. They're you know they're completely digital you know creations. They're not real, but they're they're trying to mimic or or basically replicate torture on these uh, virtual subjects. And so should there be limits around, um, you know, using, you know, what are the, what are the gains or benefits and, and should people be allowed to, you know, things that we don't allow in the real world, are there limits on what we would, you know, allow virtually? Um, mm. You know, there's really sensitive uh, topics that we could get into around this, but, but you can kind of get the picture for, you know, the kinds of things that, that at some point as this technology gains um, in popularity and becomes more mainstream, you know, what if any regulations will put in place around, you know, how people use, use the tech? Something that I'm concerned about is that I, based on my research, look at um, video games and even movies as pretty harmful for people, especially kids' psyches, and that these traumatic images and fighting really does have an effect on their attitude, on their behavior, on their fear, on their nervous system. And that when we see really terrifying images that it leaves a lasting imprint. And that's just from the two dimensional screen. I mean, even I, I noticed that if I watch a movie right before bed, I usually wake up thinking about it. And I don't watch scary, crazy movies, but it, just any movie and it'll actually imprint on yeah. me. And I'll usually wake up thinking about it as if it's my real life, like there's no difference. And that's just, that's a screen. And so I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the video game companies putting kids in VR sets while they are killing people and, and doing crazy things, being killed and shot at. And even if it seems really fun, because it will be, it's super fun. I, I'm a little bit worried about the long-term effects. Have you, is there any research happening on stuff like that? 
Yeah, I'm really glad you you brought that up because it's this this is probably one area that I think is really fascinating. Uh, I've done a lot of thinking. I have so my my brother lives so I'm an uncle. My brother has two kids. Uh, my niece is about to turn eight, and my nephew he's about to turn five. So I've basically an eight year old and a five year old uh, niece and nephew, and just broadly in general, I won't let my nephew use VR at all, um, even without adult supervision. And the reason is, and I'll come back to, to your point because it's a really, I think, really interesting one. Um, but so at Stanford in the, the lab I just mentioned, um, Jeremy Balenson, they did a study that looked at whether kids under a certain age can tell the difference between a virtual experience and a real, a real life one. And what they found is that under about the age of four or five, kids have a really difficult time distinguishing between a virtual experience and a real one. And so they can actually, regardless of whether it's harmful or not, they will grow up for the, you know, potentially for the rest of their lives having, you know, let's say you put them in a virtual uh, experience of having gone to SeaWorld, whether they've gone to SeaWorld or not, if you put them in VR at age three or four, they will grow up with this imprinted memory of, oh, wow, I've actually gone to SeaWorld. And that is so powerful and so fascinating um, that, you know, regardless of the experience, even with supervision, um, my nephew, I just, I, I won't put him in VR. My niece, on the other hand, um, when she was about six, we started I started letting her use my Oculus Rift uh, with supervision. And, you know, she would do things like go swimming with whales underwater and, uh, you know, some of the more educational VR, VR applications to, you know, just get acclimated. But I think to your point around, you know, where do we draw the limits on some of the graphic media content that, you know, we seem to be obsessed with and, and frequently consume like I've talked for the last few years, you know, I think, and I think this is not any longer a, a pretty bold claim. A few years ago, I could, you know, get some reactions from an audience as they think about it. But now it's, it seems quite obvious is that probably in the next few years, someone, if it hasn't happened already, will be diagnosed with a very real trauma, some, you know, maybe even a, a form of PTSD from a completely virtual experience. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's definitely coming. And that's definitely something that, again, speaks to the, the power and the persuasive, the persuasiveness, I guess, of the technology and how, you know, how much it can really imprint on you. So yeah, I think you're bringing up a big problem and question mark around, around the tools. And, you know, this, you know, I don't think technologists in the VR space are going to solve these problems. The, the same issues that have been around for everyone. Like who, who's responsible for, for managing what content gets consumed, you know, whether it's media or, or I'm sorry, whether it's television, film, you know, anything. Yeah. So I'm going to come back. I said earlier, there's two areas of VR that I'm personally really interested in. Uh, and the other is around, I guess it's still kind of a two part. It's around empathy, building empathy and compassion. And also similar to that is healing. And so you just said it's very possible that people will get PTSD from a VR experience. I'm also interested to know if there's any research being done on for people who have PTSD or they're coming from actual warring areas where there's traumatic environment around them. Can they go into a VR set and have really healing experiences and actually shift the way they relate to a certain situation or 
you know, I know for me, I had an experience where I was all of a sudden I was in all these different countries in the VR and people, I was singing with kids and we were, it was extraordinary. Like I traveled the world in 10 minutes and felt so connected to, to life, to the world. And a lot of people are very disconnected from the world. Um, a lot of us have unconscious racial biases. Uh, there's a lot there. And so I see a huge potential to bring more of an interconnected view of the world. And I'm just curious what you see or what's really exciting you in that world of VR. Yeah. So definitely on, so the immediate answer around using VR as a therapeutic intervention around traumatic experiences, it's definitely, that's one of the that's one of the, the research areas that's been around for quite a while and, and some interesting work being done by, I know the, the US military for sure, uh, around um, you know, giving PTSD patients virtual experiences to try and confront and, and overcome uh, traumas. Because you know, one of the things you can do with VR, and, and to, be, to be quite honest, this is not an area I'm really intimately familiar with. I haven't read a lot of the, the research lately uh, around what's happening in the space, but I but I do remember sort of glancing by this that uh, you know one of the things that can help someone suffering from PTSD is to to sort of process and confront what it is that that created that trauma, and and VR becomes a tool to um, you know in in a very safe and controlled environment can become a way to sort of work through these unprocessed traumas that, that can contribute to some of the symptoms uh, associated with PTSD. And, and that's, that, I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot written on this. So if anyone's interested in the topic, I would just encourage them to, to do a Google search and, and they can find, um, you know, VR for PTSD um, uh, healing. So that's, that's definitely the case. But in, in terms more broadly, sort of what you're also describing is this ability to, uh, you know, confront people with this you know, or, or basically inform people to have a, a, a much more flexible way of relating to the world around them um, and, and, and really addressing some of these inherent biases that we all walk around with and, and carry. Um, there was, I, forget, I, just, I just wrote an article about this researcher recently and I'm blanking on his name, but he's out of the University of Barcelona. Uh, I could quickly find it if I looked it up, but he, has done some really fascinating research around uh, what's called um, body illusion um, research. So, so, so many people will be familiar with the rubber hand experiment, where if you place uh, if you place your hand on the outside of like a, a column or like a block of wood so that you can't see it, and then in front of you on the other side of the the like the wall, I guess you could use anything that creates a wall. You place this rubber hand that that can mimic what your hand looks like. So you're looking at a rubber hand and then you have someone sit across from you and rub uh, like anything like a feather in simultaneous movements along, along your real hand, which you can't physically see and this rubber hand, which you can see. And what happens is your brain is trying to reconcile the sensation of having uh, you know, a feather rubbed against your hand with this visual stimulus of, of oh, you know, that must be where this, this sensation is coming from very quickly your brain will absorb this rubber hand as if it's its own hand and very quickly this can happen. And so, so that's, what's called a, um, that might be, I, it's the, I, 
I'm blanking and my brain's shutting down a bit on the, the, the literal term. I think it's a, a, what's called a, a body, false body illusion. But in VR, you can basically use, so that's, a, that's like a real world example of this, but in VR, you can do really fascinating things where you can basically trick your brain. And it's also just fascinating to think about how uh, flexible and fluid our brain's capacity to absorb different identities, different you know, physical body parts into its you know, sense of self. But you can literally absorb different ethnicities, different races, different um, you know, ages. There was, there was one study he looked at where he placed adults into the body of a four-year-old girl and then had that person interact with a good parent and an abusive parent and really build empathy for what it would be like as a young child to be confronted with an abusive parent. And, and, and they demonstrated that it, it really transformed uh, these, you know, the people that went through this, their experience of, of becoming responsible parents. They've done, they've looked at, you know, rehabilitation for um, convicted uh, sexual abusers, uh, how to, you know, uh, manage and, and sort of rehabilitate people who have, you know, um, domestic violence uh, abusers um, by, by basically creating empathy by placing them in the, a virtual body of a, of a domestic violence victim and, and really learning through that experience, not just, you know, this, these become really powerful tools. And um, I might quickly just look up uh, his name quickly. Um, but, but yeah, so those are, those are kinds of things that, that I think are really fascinating and, and really sort of give, you know, the ability to, to, to change our, our, you know, even who we are to an extent. His name is uh, Mel Slater. Mel Slater. Okay, yeah. great. We'll link that in the show notes. So people can look at his research. I'm really grateful to know there's people like him that are doing really um, significant research, especially around therapeutic uses, because our, you know, our therapies that we have available are somewhat limited in their ability to impact change quickly and sustainably. And so many people are turning to medications and, um, and I just love that this is a potential, a whole new route for people to truly heal. Yeah. And say that's never been possible. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And I wonder what kinds of things for, you know, various mental health, um, concepts, you know, whether it's anxiety, you know, whatever is causing your anxiety, maybe you can confront that in a safe virtual environment, uh, whether it's depression, maybe you can work on, you know, finding those mental habits that, that create resilient, you know, mental, um, behaviors, I guess, and, and using visualization in a virtual environment. I mean, these are, these are things that, you know, we're still in the very early days of the technology, but, but the kinds of things that are, that are possible and it's really interesting to think mm -hmm. about. This is so, this is really so fascinating. And there's a, a different direction I want to take it around VR. I read an article you wrote about this huge real estate company in, that's based in the U.S. and Canada that has realtors, I think globally, but they're largely based in the U.S. and Canada. They're worth over a billion dollars. They're a publicly traded company on NASDAQ now, really big in the world of real estate. And the thing that they've done differently is that they have no physical offices and their, their campus, their corporate is a virtual office. And so I'd love for you to share with us about that and what's significant about it and just, just paint us a picture for people who haven't read the article or aren't familiar with this company. 
Yeah. So this is, I think of the five or six years I've been writing about VR, this, this article for me was one of the most mind blowing concepts that I'd come across and, and to really get a picture for, for, for what we're talking about. So, so keep in mind, this is, so this is a company, like you say, they have over 12,000 employees around the world. Most of them are, are contractors, but they're, they're real estate agents. Um, but, but essentially 12,000 employees, uh, they are, like you say, publicly traded. Their market cap for a significant period of time was over a billion dollars. I think since the market's gone down, I think their market cap's now just under a billion dollars. Uh, but they have, you know, full-time employees in, you know, several continents. Their executive team, you know, their CEO's in Washington. Their CTO lives in New York. Their CFO is in uh, Reno, I believe. Um, and they have literally one single room that's got one desk in it, and that is their entire physical office. This is a 12,000 person company that doesn't have a single physical office for their employees. So that means if you get hired by this company, your first day on the job, you roll out of bed, you download the software onto your computer, you log into what is a second, essentially like a, like a second life virtual world, and you control an avatar that walks around this virtual you know, digital campus, and you go to your meetings, you go to your onboarding sessions, uh, you know, walking around in this basically like a video game world. And I, you know, the fact that, you know, many people listening to this may be familiar with Second Life, which was a massive phenomenon about 15 years ago. And for anyone that, that, that and I'm sure many people will have never heard of Second Life, Second Life was, um, it's basically an online virtual world where you create an account for yourself, you have an avatar and with your avatar you can explore these entire virtual worlds and what was really unique about second life is that it was the first or one of the first examples where none of the virtual world or none of the content was built by second life it was built by other users and so users were building nightclubs they were building i mean company i mean it was a massive phenomenon it was you know companies were building offices there i think ibm had a had a corporate office inside second life um, I just learned actually yesterday that U2 threw a rock concert in Second Life about 10 years ago. Um, I mean, it was, it was massive. It had millions of users. And so, so, you know, so 15 years on, we're now living in this world, which really almost looks like, uh, if you've read the book or seen the, the Steven Spielberg film that came out last year, like Ready Player One, where we have these fully immersive online virtual worlds that will really start to become places where we hang out with friends. We, in this case, go to work, uh, you know, where we go to school, where we, you know, spend, spend our free time. Um, and so, so, you know, really moving into these science fiction worlds where we start to almost spend our lives inside these digital virtual worlds is, is happening much, much faster than I think many people realize. And the fact that a, you know, 12,000 employee billion dollar publicly traded company doesn't have a single physical office and everyone at this company that works there has to show up in VR. I think that is one of the most mind blowing things I've, I've come across. Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of what it means to show up on VR for people that they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I, it, it's, without having read the article, I'd be a little bit confused as to what you're sure. actually. Yeah. yeah, so so for most of these virtual online worlds, they're still, interacted with on a two-dimensional screen. So it's not VR in the way that we've been talking about it for most of this conversation, which involves putting on a, a VR headset. So what we're talking about is 
for most people, they sit down in front of, let's say any computer, like I'm, I'm in front of a, an Apple, you know, a MacBook pro and I have, so on my MacBook, I would download this application. It's called XP world. It's the name of this, this company's digital world. And when I open it, I basically using my controller, uh, my, my arrow keys, I have an avatar that is my digital representation inside this world. And using my arrow keys, I can walk my avatar around and talk to people. It's, you know, I have a microphone on my, uh, head on my headphones and it's, you know, just like you and I are looking at each other on, on a zoom call right now, it would basically be like this zoom call, except inside a three dimensional video game world where you have an avatar. I have an avatar. There's a spatial environment so I can, you know, I could get close to you. I could, you know, I'm not saying I would do this, but I, you know, I could breach your personal space and you breach mine. I mean, you can, there's social norms. There's, you know, this such thing as too many people in, in a room together, you know, all of the social norms that, that exist in the real world. When you inhabit a, a three-dimensional video game world, you start to replicate all of those uh, things that, that happen in the real world. But basically on a, on, on the simplest level, it's basically like having a video game character that you walk around and uh, most people use a two-dimensional screen, but, but what's coming is that in the future, and some people are doing this now, is you'll inhabit those virtual worlds inside one of these fully immersive uh, headset devices. So you feel like you're actually in this video game world, not just looking at a, a 2D screen on your laptop. And so just to clarify, clarify for everyone, any meetings that these people have, any of the trainings that they do through their company, it's all through a digital platform. And so it's live, like you'd be in a Zoom call. It's live in that way, but you're actually on a screen seeing yourself there in the group with yeah. everyone's avatars, um, which is so fascinating. And I know that what was so innovative, one of the things that was so innovative about this company, what was it called? Do you know the where? company is called XP Realty. So it's EXP Realty. And I, I also, I just mentioned, it's super ironic that this company that has no physical office space is in the business of selling physical real estate. <laughs> and what's so, what, something that caught my attention is that one of the biggest costs prohibitors for real estate companies is that usually they have to build out offices for all the realtors to have a place to work from, which is a huge cost. And so it limits their ability to grow. And so they've had exponential growth because they've taken that cost out, just give the resources, marketing, whatever it is that the realtors need, and they are just working from their own homes, which is a movement that so many people are going in wanting to have more freedom and not have an office. And so they just completely took off the need for an office they just have that one room with the desk because legally they need an office and address. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Like you, like you described, and, and I think this is true for uh, franchise businesses like uh, real estate brokerages, like in the United States, you know, anyone listening to this in the U S will, you know, maybe familiar with, um, I don't know, I can't think of like a, like Remax, for example, like it's a big national brand that everyone has like their local Remax, the way, you know, Remax as a real estate brokerage grew was, you know, you have to go to a city, you have to open a physical office, you got to fill, fill that office with human people that go and sell real estate to pay for that office. And then once, you know, once you have a sustained, you know, sustaining office with people selling real estate to fund that office, you can reinvest those funds into another office and do the same thing. And it's this very slow growth thing, but you, you know, and, and real estate, 
brokers I learned in doing research for this article, like really require the ability to get together with each other, training each other, uh, sharing, you know, best practices with, with each other. So this, again, it's ironic, but physical real estate is such an important part of um, being a successful real estate broker because they learn from each other and trainings and onboardings and all, all of this, that to basically put that into this virtual environment where they didn't have to go in and invest in a, in a physical office and the costs associated enable this company to, to almost go viral and explode um, you know, pretty quickly, like almost in a, at a speed, like pretty unheard of for, for any national uh, brokerage. But you can, you can imagine you know, that, same being, that same thing being true for almost any company or business trying to you know, cut down on costs of having physical office space if they want to build a, you know, a global multinational business and have a, you know, a team of people all over the world, virtual reality is, it's really, you know, the, it's really competing with, you know, real estate, the airline business, you know, all these things we use to connect with each other. VR can, can potentially play a role in connecting us in, in physical space uh, without having to actually move our physical bodies to, to do that. Hmm. You know, when I first saw the headline of your article, which people can find on Singularity University if they search for Aaron Frank. And we'll also, we'll also link that in the show notes. But before I read the article, I thought, this is genius. There's realtors who are sending their clients headsets to experience all the houses that they're wanting to sell. So that rather than sitting at open houses all day and spending so many hours showing people houses, the people get to experience the houses in VR and then they decide which one they want to go see. And, and it's funny, it's not what they're doing, but what I got from that instant idea is that just even for people who, have, who aren't interested in technology necessarily, like it's not your path of, of learning or work, um, there's something about seeing what's going on in VR that helps spark new ideas and it gets us to just think about life in a new way because this is creating a completely new opportunity for how we relate for how we work, for how we heal, for how we, all these different things, right? And so even if it's not VR, I think it's really interesting to just follow along with because it's, it, in my experience, sparks innovative thought and deeper, deeper thinking and how we can look at life in a new way. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, and I think it's, it's so exciting to be, you know, exposed to all of these different areas that are moving so quickly you know, and, and so I'm at, you know, I'm at a place called Singularity University, which is really predicated on this idea that underpinning the speed of development of all of these information technologies is this exponential growth that, that, that and what makes exponential growth significant is that we're actually very poorly designed as humans to think about and make sense of the speed at which it's happening. And we're now seeing that same exponential speed take hold in you know, artificial intelligence, biotech, energy systems, health and medicine, um, AI, I mean, and, v and virtual reality and augmented reality too are, are, are a really clear and good example of, you know, these, these compounded developments where we see more, we've seen more happen in VR in the last, you know, five years since the Oculus Rift came out in the last, than in the last like 20 years, you know, the last you know, 30 years of, of, of the space. And VR is not a new technology. It's, you know, it's been around for quite a while. So yeah, I think it's just, it's such an interesting time because, you know, it really is the very beginning of this. If anyone's thinking about getting into this space, you know, there, there, there's a, my favorite quote from, uh, from Kevin Kelly. I forget where he said it, it might've been on a podcast, but he, he pointed out that, you know, there is no such thing as an expert in 
virtual reality right now because it's so new. Like everyone in this space is figuring this out together as it's coming. Um, and it's, it's the very beginning. I mean, this is a fun conversation because we can imagine the kinds of things that you can do with it, but it's still, it's still so early and it's, you know, really there's so much, you know, limitless potential for all of it at the moment. Hmm. I love that you brought up Kevin Kelly. Um, for those of you who don't know Kevin Kelly, he's a really inspiring man and he coined the term or, or at least uses the idea of protopia, which is basically rather than just visioning the utopia of the world that we're all wanting to create and, you know, many people watching to be part of the Hive community, which is a community of leaders who are committed to creating a better world. And as great as it is to envision the best possible future that we'd like to create, um, this concept is about envisioning progress. So not utopia, but, but progress. And I see that technology, especially VR, like we've been talking about, can be really used in a progressive way to forward um, humanity forward in a positive way, as long as we stay on that track and don't uh, let, you know, we've talked about some of the more risky areas, but if we, you know, just focused on how we can actually use this for progress, it seems like this is an incredible, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI and biotech, and I don't see VR getting as much, um, as much airtime globally in terms of talking about it in a progressive way. Does that feel true for you? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And it makes sense too. I mean, it's certainly not the kind of ubiquitous, you know, high impact, you know, global society shifting technology and say something like biotech or AI, which, you know, there's all, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to come up with any reason why not a single person on the planet won't be touched by, affected by, um, you know, developments happening in both biotech and AI. And at the moment, you know, VR is still a fairly nascent technology. It's still fairly clunky, expensive, though it's fallen in cost at an unbelievable speed in the last few years. I mean, this year, 2019, uh, Oculus is coming out with a, a headset called the Quest, which is basically the same exact functionality that I, you know, spent way too much money a few years ago on a, on a system that has a tons of wires and needs like a, you know, thousand dollar PC just to run the graphics card. And, you know, it's, you know, now it's, you know, less than a few hundred dollars. Um, but yeah, and it's, you know, these, so, so the, the, the cost is coming down, but it's not yet really a mainstream, you know, ubiquitous, everyone has it in their home. It's touched the lives of, you know, billions of people around the world. Um, and, and I'm not sure that it necessarily will ever get to the same kind of level of, you know, discussion that that's happening around technologies like AI and biotech because of, you know, I think the, the, the potential impact that, that those two technologies have on really far ranging things, you know, our global, our, our health, our labor markets, um, you know, the effects that they're having on our geopolitical climate. Um, you know, I think we're a bit a ways away from, you know, VR really touching that at the moment, it's still kind of like a new media tool. Um, but who knows in the next, you know, 10, 15 years that, you know, we could be, you know, return to this conversation and, and, you know, everyone's talking about the, the, the risks and opportunities and the world changing effects of, of, of VR as a technology. So to wrap this conversation up, I would love for you to share if you could paint a, an image of the next five, 10 years of how VR gets out in the world. How would you want people interacting with it? What is maybe what's a project that you're most excited about or something that an application that maybe you see as possible that there maybe isn't research being done right now 
but what would excite you the most if if something with VR happened? Like, what would just light you up and you couldn't wait to, you'd, you'd be cheerleading and be like, we did it, we did something really cool. <laughs> you know what's really interesting about this is, is I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely demonstrate some immediacy bias because, um, and I'll just timestamp, we're having this conversation on February 6th and just this past weekend, something really, really fascinating happened. So if anyone's listening to this podcast, um, so I mentioned February 6th, 2019, if anyone's listening to this like months from now or, you know, like a year from now or longer, this won't have that immediate um, relevance, but it is something that touched on. And actually, I'm going to go back to um, something Kevin Kelly once uh, predicted. I forget where he was having a, again, it's probably a podcast I was listening to. And he made a really interesting prediction where he projects that sometime in the next like 10 years that we will see the first, and I, I don't know how he would define it, because, uh, but he projects that we'll have the first million person flash mob where a million people, for whatever reason, maybe, you know, kind of like Burning Man style, show up somewhere for some dedicated reason or purpose, and then will completely dissolve and, and disappear uh, again. And, you know, we have, and I, I, for some reason, I'm really fascinated by just really large scale human gatherings. You know, I, I was just reading about how the, the Boston, I'm sorry, not the Boston, the, um, the Chicago Cubs World Series uh, victory parade a few years ago was like the seventh largest human gathering in, in history or something. Wow. But so this past weekend, and you may have seen, I'm really curious if you, if you saw this, um, there was a really big thing that happened in, do you know Fortnite, the video game? Mm -mm. No. Okay, so Fortnite is, and you should probably know it, it's a, uh, I'm sure it's, it's like the most popular video game in the world right now. It's like a very standard uh, battle royale. It's kind of like a cartoonish like shooter game. So it's, it's you know, but it's um, by far the most popular game, you know, across demographics. A lot of kids play it. But there was um, a DJ. Do you know Marshmallow, the DJ? No, I don't. So this was, I, you should definitely check this out. So this DJ, really popular, put on a concert, like a live concert inside this video game, and 10 million people on Saturday showed up in the video game so they're basically sitting in front of their tv in front of their xbox or something but it's a but it's a it's an odd like fortnite is is definitely one of the most fascinating global phenomena. i'll send you an article um that that i think really helped sort of clarify and crystallize the significance of, of fortnite as a video game it is definitely the most popular video game in the world right now but they put on a live concert by this dj that 10 million people as an avatar showed up to and so I was thinking back on this Kevin Kelly projection is like, well, what if the first million person flash mob doesn't happen in the real world, but we have, you know, million person events. Like imagine going to an event that has millions of people from around the world that you can go and talk to and interact with and learn from and bump into people, but you're sitting in your living room at home. That wow. for me is like the most mind blowing idea and concept. And I, want it to exist and I don't know why I think it just would be so cool kind of like people talk about Woodstock you know several decades ago because there were so many people there but imagine going to like the VR equivalent of Woodstock and having been there and meet people from all over the world just while you are you know sitting in your living room that I think would be really cool but yeah I'll send you an article about Fortnite because I'm a little you should definitely know about it and then this uh, you should check out this this marshmallow concert that <laughs> 10 million people showed up to that is crazy 
that's that's a lot of people. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's um, last people. week's show, I was talking to Christopher Life, and he's creating a new political party called One Nation. And um, a really important theme we landed on, it was either Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela that said the only way to create a new political system or to make big changes, to learn to organize as well as you know, the political parties do. And so the ability to gather people into shared space literally has the power to change the world. And so I don't know if that's some of the things that you're tracking, but when I think about a million, 10 million people coming together in that way and not needing the permits and the, and the law enforcement and all the variables, it's very hard to gather that many people. I'm thinking about those million people, however many after the Cubs won, and the city was probably chaos, like madness. Yeah, which has which is fun in its own ways and has its challenges and others. And so thinking about gathering people, but without all of that and still being able to feel the energy and meet new people. And um, I, I do also I'm getting really excited about that. I've never considered that. And yeah. it has the potential. I mean, that's that has the potential to create movements. Yeah, that's the th like imagine like, uh, you know, a, some kind of march or some kind of protest or some kind of big human gathering that really catches people's eyes like this, this Fortnite concert over the weekend, it was mind blowing to see the response online and social media and, you know, every major publication wrote about it. It's like, whoa, 10 million people in one shared place doing what? I mean, it's, you know, you can imagine that kind of movement building thing happening but inside of a virtual environment for all the benefits you describe you know you don't need permits you don't need you know all the things so yeah that for i don't know why i've just that's been something i've been thinking about for a while that i would love to see that and then you know develop in the next few years hmm. you have my interest sparked in this this new direction and this is you know what i shared a little bit ago is that when we track vr what's possible it does open us up to a more innovative perspective i had never considered that and so while it's through VR, I'm now starting to think about all of the potential applications and implications of what's possible through that. And so I just love how it opens up the lens and just like, like step back and like, wow, we our wildest imaginations and what we've been seeing in movies for all these years, um, these things that were once impossible are actually becoming possible, which is both terrifying and exhilaratingly beautiful. Yeah, well said, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Mm. Is there anything that you'd like to, to, before we wrap up, anything else you'd like to share with us or just any resources you want people to look at? Uh, no, I, I do most of my publications now on Singularity Hub, which is our media website at Singularity University. I can definitely send you that. And then I post, I post some things on my Twitter, which is just at Aaron D. Frank. Um, but other than that, no, I, you know, I would definitely, I'm excited after, after this conversation, I'm going to send you some stuff about this Fortnite thing. Cause it's so mind blowing. But, um, yeah, other than that, yeah, that's how people can, can reach me. Amazing. Yeah. Please share that. And then we'll link that with our show notes when we post this episode online. So thank you so much, Aaron, for being here. This was such a great conversation. I'm so grateful for you coming on to Hive Minds this week. Thank you. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate this. This was great. Yeah, and for everyone who tuned in, thank you so much for being here. It's really such a gift to be able to connect through technology with people all around the world. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to, to Aaron Frank or to us at Hive um, or to me, Charlene, and let's stay connected. It's what it's all about is being connected with the global community, just like what Aaron's excited about. So maybe Hive will do a, a Hive flash mob one of these days. That'd be great. <laughs> cool. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.